kind of time in this series. This is our last week in our in our Ruth series, and it's kind of funny because we've been leaning into this love story. You know, this story about Ruth and Boaz meeting and falling in love and how they got together. And I don't know if you can tell from the music this morning, but it's not been like getting into me. Like I've been like rocking out on all these love songs. You know, these worship songs that are just about how much God loves us and how much we love Him and. And uh, so, yeah, it's been like seeping into me. I've been like a sappy romantic, you know, for the last month, which has been kind of fun. Um, I've been talking a lot about me and Esther's falling in love story in, in the messages um, this week. Uh, and then last week, our one failed attempt at a digital relationship, which if you missed that, you want to go back and listen to it. Um, but this week, I thought um, that I'd... Uh, I'd like to kind of zoom in on something that is often overlooked, this, this piece of, of the story that, uh, that we, we don't always tell in, a, in, a, in our falling in love stories, um, and, uh, and I'm sure yours is the same way, because here we, we tell the story of how we met, and we focus hard on the guy and the gal, and, and the way they acted and reacted to each other, and, and we forget all the supporting characters. Sometimes we forget to talk about you know, everybody else that was kind of a part of that story. Esther and I fell in love in community. Like, there was a group of people involved, as I'm sure many of you did. Uh, we were not the only players in the narrative. My best friend facilitated our first phone call. He, uh, we had made a list of my perfect girl. Like, I had sworn off women for a while. Like, Paul was single. I'm going to be single. Women are terrible. And that lasted for like two weeks. And I was like, okay, this probably isn't going to work for me. And uh, he was like, what are you looking for? And I was like, he's like, you got to list it so you know when the right girl comes along. So I made this big, long list on a yellow legal pad. And we finished, and he was like, I know the girl. I was like, shut up. He's like, no, I do. So he calls Esther. He hadn't talked to her in two years. He was like, uh, so he had to get her number from somebody else. And he was like, so he called her. And he's like, hey, this is Chad. You remember me? That's how long it's been. He had to go, you remember me? And she's like, yeah. He's like, hey, do you remember meeting that big guy, Chris, years ago uh, at that dance, a really big guy? And uh, she's like, yeah. He's like, cool. Here he is. That's how he gave me. I had no lead in. So I was like, I've got, and I'm like, what is this, a cold call? Like that? And uh, so, yeah, uh, we, we spent like two hours on the phone. And so he, he facilitated that. Like, I, that would not have happened on my own. Chad set that up. Um, we met at a mutual friend's house for our very first lunch date. And that friend, incidentally, was the reason I didn't give up because Esther did not give me much to go on. She was, I had no idea she was interested at all. I would have bailed. 20 times, and this friend kept going, dude, she is so into you. Like, she's, she can't quit talking about it. I've never seen her like this. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is not the way I usually function. So, if not for that person, the story wouldn't have happened. But anyway, our first real date was with a group of people. We went to a passion play with a whole group of people. We spent 99% of our time dating in the, in the physical presence of our community, who were also kind of shaping us spiritually and emotionally at the time. And when we decided to get married, I had to go to her family and talk to, to all of them about it. And our first date, when I showed up to pick Esther up, her dad had hung a teddy bear from a noose at the front door. And when I went in to meet him, he was cleaning his guns. And so I knew when I showed up to ask if I could propose to Esther, you know, he was not going to make it easy on me. And he didn't. We, uh, we ate dinner, the whole family ate dinner, and when cleanup was kind of underway, I kept waiting for a moment during dinner to, like, and I was having trouble getting started. So um, so dinner's over, cleanup's underway, 
And I finally get out the words uh, my father-in-law, hey, John, can I, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? And everything in the house stops. Like, everybody puts down their dishes, runs to the table, and they stand behind John on one end of the table, and I'm on the other end all by myself. And, uh, and I, he, he tells it that I had sweat running down my face and one tear that like escaped. Uh, it was not like that. But, um, but I asked, and he made me sit in silence for two minutes before he answered. And I don't think he was going to say anything until his wife was like, John. And so he finally, finally answered. And uh, in fact, the night that Avesser and I's first kiss, or at least the first kiss that she participated in, if you don't know that story, it's, a, it's another great one. But um, I walked her out to the car, and I leaned over, and I gave her a kiss, and she kissed me back, and immediately the second-floor balcony in the apartment behind us erupted in whistles and cheers and whoops because unbeknownst to us, they had all snuck out on the balcony to watch me walk her out, and they, so they all got to participate in our, our first kiss. And, uh, and, and so Esther and I, as I'm sure most of you did, fell in love in the context of community. And, uh, and I think this bears on today's study, um, because this week in the book of Ruth, in chapter 4, Ruth herself barely features uh, in, this, in this chapter. She's barely in, in this one, uh, because this chapter is about the community business. This is about the things that, that go on uh, in, the, in, the, in the presence of the community, that, that, that is about her and Boaz's love story, but that she's not really a part of. So I'll be reading in Ruth 4. If you want to follow along in your own Bible or app, if not, the words will be behind me, or if you're online, they'll be right in the middle of your screen. Um, so Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there, just as the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. Uh, just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called him out. Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together, and then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I would speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way, you can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I, uh, well, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring uh, a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. Don't get that at all. This publicly validated the transaction, as it would. Um, so the, the other family redeemer drew off his sandal, uh, as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. And then Boaz said to the elders and the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and, uh, in which the land I have uh, acquired, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. And the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrath uh, and be famous in Bethlehem. 
And may the Lord give you descendants uh, by this uh, young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman of the, women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And this is a genealogical record of the ancestors of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we talked about the Goel, the family redeemer, and how uh, family land in Israel was never truly lost. Um, if someone fell on hard times and needed to sell the family land, they could do so, but the family redeemer always got first dibs on buying it. Or if it was sold outside the family, the family redeemer was allowed always to purchase it back. You couldn't deny them the purchase back as long as they paid a fair price. Um, so that the family, so the land would always stay in the family. Um, this is where the connection between um, people and land gets really interesting in Israel. In our story, when Malon dies and leaves Ruth a widow, and Naomi had no other children um, to inherit Elimelech's portion of the promised land, um, suddenly you have a piece of land with no person, um, which was unacceptable in the Jewish community. You weren't allowed to have a piece of land with no person attached to it. Because um, who knows, a foreigner may come in and try to claim it. Or, like, ownership of the land was hugely important. Um, so whoever redeems this piece of property, uh, or whoever owns any piece of property, has a responsibility to create an heir for it. Because you have to have a person attached to the land. So when Boaz redeems this property and marries Ruth, and they have Obed, ironically, Obed does not inherit Boaz's property. He does not become Boaz's heir. Um, he becomes Malon's heir. So he's considered Malon's son. And then if they have a second child, he can be Boaz's heir. It's kind of a strange system. Um, but, uh, uh, but you had to have an heir for every piece of property. Um, so property was looked at quite differently in that culture, um, where we collect as much property as possible and then hand it off to the next generation as if it's our responsibility to provide for future generations in Israel, they saw inheritance as a responsibility to provide somebody to steward what God has given you into the future. So your responsibility wasn't to provide for the people in the future. Your responsibility was to provide for the land. You had to provide a, 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 an heir to steward the land that God had, had given you. So it's like you weren't responsible for the people um, in your lineage. That's God's responsibility. The people, you're responsible as a steward of the land, to provide a future steward of the land. Um, and it might seem like semantics, but it's kind of fascinating, this motivation shift, um, because when you feel responsible to make as much money as possible to provide an inheritance for your people in the future, 
your focus is on your work and, and, and on building wealth because you want to, to have as much as possible to hand off. But when your focus is providing an heir and the right heir for the land that God has given you, when you feel responsible to, um, to, to create and, and raise the right kind of heir, well, suddenly your focus is on your child. Because you want to raise that child to be the right kind of heir to inherit the land. So you're not as focused on building wealth to, to hand off to an heir. You're, you're focused on building an heir who's worthy of God's property that, that you have. And so it's subtle, but it's a pretty substantial difference, um, really. Uh, but here's what, what the interesting thing about the system. Because land was valuable and always valuable... By attaching people to the land, they, they are granted a value that they might not otherwise have had. Um, so where we raise our net worth to make uh, it worthy of our people, they raise the people to make it, them worthy of the holdings. Um, in the same way, when, when we today talk about the culture of that way, that day we have this tendency using our standards to say things like, Women weren't really valued in that culture. They were just property. Anybody ever heard that line? Like, women were basically property back then. They weren't even even valued. Um, only in that culture, they wouldn't say it like that. They would say, we value our women so highly, we make them property. Because property had a tangible value that, that people didn't necessarily have. And so by saying, you know, by, in essence, considering um, uh, their their women property, that sounds so terrible to even say, um, they were saying this is valuable because everybody knew property was valuable. It had, a, it had a tangible, I'm not saying this is right, I'm just saying this is how they looked at it. They didn't look at it like we would, like, oh, they'll just sell a woman, blah, blah, They wouldn't see it that way. They were seeing it that way. Yeah, that's how valuable she is. Like, we actually assess, uh, uh, assess a certain value to her that's measurable and that goes with her. No matter what happens, she carries this value. In fact, the word redemption was originally a financial word. Um, when you pawn something or sell something, uh, the pawnbroker loans you money holding your real property um, in collateral. When you pay off the debt, you get your property back. And they call that redeeming the property. Um, you redeem uh, property. Oxford's Dictionary defines redemption as the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment, the clearing of a debt. And so redemption was always a, a swap of property. So in those days, so when we have a family redeemer, it, it, it means somebody who's, who's buying back property. Um, and so in those days, Ruth, being property was a good thing um, because it meant that she had real value in the culture, that, she, that as a Moabite, she otherwise would not have had. Um, which the ancients would, would not have seen as a negative thing. They would have seen that as a... So she's uh, provided for simply because she's attached to this property. It's kind of a weird thing by our thinking where, you know, every human has this autonomy that's valuable in and of itself. To them, that wouldn't have had value in and of itself. You had to, you had to have a, a, a real kind of financial value to be valuable. Um, well, this week in our story, Ruth's value as property... Um, and her anchor to Malon's land uh, paves the way for her to wind up with her love, Boaz, um, who she had just recently kind of struck up this clandestine relationship with. We talked last week about how she snuck into his tent and, 
and kind of laid at his feet, kind of declaring, you know, I want to be with you. And he was a little bit surprised. And, and they made this little plan. I'm going to go talk to the, there's somebody closer than me. I want to go talk to him. We're going to work this out. And so the, they had kind of recently entered into this little relationship. Um, and honestly, if she, if this system of her being property wasn't in place, she would not have wound up with Boaz. So it's kind of an interesting twist of this story. Um, so land and, and property always had an anchor in the family. So tracing lineage was really important because you got to know who the land goes to. Um, and, and in one sense, keeping track of the borders was important so you know where your land stops and somebody else's land. But it was just as important to track lineage. In, in fact, most of our marriage rituals, as much as we want to pretend like they came from Adam and Eve and you know God presenting you to Adam, most of it was established for property. Like, you know, you know most of the, the ancient world, like Rome, um, we think of Rome as this, like, decadent, you know, uh, sin place. They were actually very, um, they weren't monogamous, but they were, they were, uh, 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 they had very strict marriage rules. Like, they were, you were only allowed to marry one woman. And so, you, you married one woman, they really, they had really kind of strict divorce laws, too. You were only allowed to be married to one woman, and then you were expected, if you want to sleep with other women, to go do that with the temple prostitutes. But you could only have one wife. So they weren't, like, moral. They were just, they just had really strict, like, marriage laws. And it was all because they didn't want property to get lost. Man, you get two wives. You were allowed to have two wives in Rome. They were not a polygamous society. Um, you couldn't have two wives because that makes property a total mess. Who gets what? Whose kids get what? And wars are fought over that stuff. So it's kind of funny. We think of uh, Rome, you know, uh, like monogamous marriage always being a moral thing, in the ancient world it really wasn't. It was a property thing. Like you were you were allowed to go sleep with whoever you wanted, but you could only marry one because that's the only way we can keep the property lines clean. Um, so it's kind of funny. But Boaz goes to this closer Goel, this this redeemer who is closer than him, um, uh, and and he offers the redemption of Malon's property um, to the one who has the closer claim. And then the guy immediately says, yes, who wouldn't want more land? Absolutely, I'll, I'll take it. You know, sure. Um, except if he redeems the property, he has to also redeem all the property, which includes Ruth as part of this property. Everything of value, um, which includes Ruth. Uh, and this is where the responsibility to produce an heir um, kicks in and gets a little tricky. Um, because there's a hitch in this inheritance system. Um, most likely, this guy doesn't have an heir yet. Um, if he, uh, if he had, he would have most likely not hesitated to, to redeem the land and, and marry Ruth uh, and then provide an heir for Malon. But since if he doesn't have an heir uh, and, and he produces a male heir for Ruth, that counts as Malon's son. Okay? I know we're getting pretty deep into like the, the Jewish marriage systems back then. But, but if he fails to produce a male heir for his own land this heir of Malon's can also inherit his stuff. Um, and so it gets a little tricky. And if all he has is daughters, there is some precedent for your daughters to inherit your land if there are no other options. But if he produces a male heir for, for Malon and all he has is daughters, they won't get anything. Malon's heir will get all of his stuff. So, it's, so this is a tricky situation. So when he was like, ooh, I better not, because that could mess up my whole estate. Like, that's what he's talking about. Like, he probably didn't have a male heir yet. And he's like, oh, man, I don't want to get into that whole mess. You redeem, um, you know, I'm out. And, and they, 
they swap shoes like people do. Um, and so, uh, suffice it to say that redeeming the land before you have your own land secured and an air in place is risky business. And so this guy um, steps out, and this leaves the road um, to marital bliss open for Boaz and Ruth. Um, and what I love most about uh, this is how masterful Boaz is about this whole thing. Uh, last week we talked about how when Ruth shows up in Boaz's tent, he's a little bit surprised because he's like, man, I would have thought you'd have gone for some of the younger men. So apparently Boaz is a little older than she is, and Ruth was probably pretty enough to, to get any of the younger men, but she chooses Boaz. Um, but the second he realizes that Ruth has chosen him, um, he's like, okay, here's the deal. We've got another Goel in, in, in line in front of me. I'll find, uh, you can tell this dude had thought this through already. Like, he had already done the research. Like, he had probably done a little daydreaming. You know, he had, this is not like, oh, what are we going to do? Like, he already, the second she, he wakes up and she's at his feet, he's like, here's the plan. Like, he, so he had been giving this some thought um, before. Yeah, and he's been providing for Ruth for the entire harvest season. Remember he told his men, like, hey, throw off a little extra grain for Ruth. Because she was following gleaning, you know, which was a, a Jewish ritual that provided for for widows and orphans and the poor. and, and But he's kind of cheating the system a little bit. He's like, you know, kind of throw out some stuff for her every once in a while. Let's take care of her. So he's been providing for um, for the entire harvest season already. And, and now, you know, everything's kind of falling into place for him. And he plays this other Goel like a fiddle. It's fun to, it's fun to like, to read. He sets him up, you know, with this dream piece of land. Hey, dude, uh, this land's here if you want it. The guy's like, oh, yeah, awesome. I'm in. And he's like, oh, one complication. And, of course, he probably knew the guy didn't have an heir yet. So he probably knew this was going to be tricky for the guy. But, uh, but it's fun to watch. So they walk away. Boaz has Ruth and land, and this guy's got a shoe. And it feels like he dodged a bullet, you know. Um, salespeople, take a note, because this guy's a master. Like, he played this really well. Um, and, of course, this would be the grandkids' favorite part of the story. You know, when great-grandpa Boaz completely worked the system and overcame all the obstacles to, to win his way to great-grandma Ruth. Um, but the thing I love about this love story is if we're honest... Uh, and, and, and this is true of all love stories, um, is that the, the way the main event, the central narrative about these two lovers falling in love um, comes with a whole ton of backstory, which it always does. Good love stories always come with a ton of backstory. I mean, it, it isn't just Ruth and Boaz meeting in a bar and striking a conversation and realizing they like each other and getting married. Like, that's not... The story, Ruth is a widow and all of that history. And she's a Moabitess with all of that history, a whole different culture to bring to the table. And now she's living as part of a system that no matter where she's from, grants her value in this Jewish culture because the story goes all the way back to God and Torah and the rules that Torah set up that she's now benefiting from. So her story goes all the way back to Moses. And the same system means that whoever redeems Malon's land gets Ruth, and she's part of that system. That plays in. She's made this deep commitment to Naomi, her mother-in-law from before, who she had every right to walk away from, but who she loves. And now she's fallen in love with this guy, Boaz. And, and all of that is part of this beautiful love story. Joanne, Boaz is a Jew who lives according to, to this Jewish rituals and codes that includes gleaning. 
If, he, if they didn't have gleaning, how does he ever meet his love? He's also impressed that, that this Moabitess is taking such good care of her, of her widow. Boaz probably, as a Jew, had long-standing and deep-seated prejudices against Moabites. Like, it, it wasn't really common for Jews to not like Moabites. And he was probably, a, he probably made those statements like, she's not bad for a Moabite. You know, those really, really terrible, you know, statements. It probably wouldn't have been out of the, the league of ordinary for him to say something like that. Like, man, I never would have thought a Moabite could be so kind to her mother-in-law. And Boaz likes this girl. He can't simply just grab her for his own. He has to, he has to play the, the games with the system because he's an honorable man and the culture has rules, and that's part of the love story. So, in short, this love story has a backstory. There's a big backstory. In fact, all love stories have backstories. You don't just marry your spouse. You, you marry their past and their families and their medical issues and their hurts and their hang-ups. You marry their culture and their hopes and their dreams. Like, it comes with a whole backstory. I told Esther before we ever got married that no one on my dad's side of the family had ever gotten divorced. Ever. Like, one aunt did for like two years, and the family of black her so bad that they got married again so they could be part of the family again. So we've got like one little hiccup. But other than that, no one in that side of the family has ever been divorced. And I told Esther, that puts a lot of pressure on my generation because nobody wants to go first. And I was like, I am not going to be the first to do that. Like, we've got married fast. We hadn't known each other long. I sat her down. I didn't, here's how dumb I was. I didn't even know that like, that divorce was a negative in in the Bible. Like, I I didn't even know that much. But I was like, hey, in our family, we don't do that. And she was like, I already assumed. And I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. We don't do that. Like, I, and I was like, I kind of gave her my dad's um, line, which is, in our family, there is no divorce, just hunting accidents. And <laughs> but Esther didn't just marry me. She married the full legacy that was handed down from time out of mind. And when she said, I do, she picked up the weight of all those generations. And she still won't go hunting with me. <laughs> and I think this is important as we turn to look at this chapter from kind of the allegorical angle that we've been treating with it uh, for the past three weeks. Because as we look at the book of Ruth as a metaphor um, for how many of us have come to faith in Jesus... Um, we can't help but see salvation as this amazing love story. Um, and, and like every love story, it comes with a backstory. It comes with a lot of history behind it. I actually absolutely love telling my story with Jesus, the way Jesus has saved me. And, and uh, I love all the times Jesus showed up in my story even before that and, and moved in my life and touched my life. I could see Jesus providing for me and taking care of me and even wooing me long before I really got to know him. And, and I can see how when I chose Jesus, which is always this confusing blend of I can't tell if I chose him or he chose me, but when I look back on that day, that day that I decided that Jesus would be the one I would aim my life at, I could sense that, that he was pleased with that and that his presence was so real to me in that moment. And I honestly thought in that moment that that was it, like that it was just me and Jesus. And I understood that I had some backstory, which, you know, I, had, I was a mess, which was exactly why I needed Jesus, you know. But as I grew, I was shocked to find out that my backstory went back farther than I ever imagined, all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
My story included God calling a man named Abraham and promising him that he would have a descendant, and through that descendant, I would be blessed. I found out my story included God calling a man named Moses, who, uh, who delivered and, and really started a nation, and that that nation would be the cultural background of my Savior. There's a lot of backstory there. My story included King David and his heir, who is the promised ruler of all of this. The reason I spent, spent so much time in the Old Testament, you know, as we, as we study on Sundays, is because I love the, the backstory. And every good love story has a backstory, and I think that's important. You can't understand your relationship with Jesus without understanding the backstory. You were created for a purpose, a design. Like it was something you were made for. You were created to walk with God and be in loving community with other people. You don't have to read three pages into the book to get that. That you were made for a specific purpose. You were created to have caring dominion over the earth care for it, intend it, and steward it the way God would. The way He would care for His good creation. You were created to live an amazing human life connected to God and to yourself and to others and to the, the earth. To your, to your vocation and calling. And, 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 and we were created to allow God to define for us what was good and what was evil without all the moral complexities of trying to find black and white in a world full of gray. We were never intended for that. We were intended for this, this, this simplicity. There was something we were made for. We were created to have all of that. But something went wrong in the story, and we know it did. Your first parents started it. They made this tragic decision that broke things, and, and just in case we dared to hope that it only affected those two, one generation later, you've got murder. Proving that this, this thing called sin was here to stay. That it, was, that it got in deep and wasn't going anywhere. Even though Adam and Eve started it, every single one of us have perpetrated that same sin pattern that they started. And not only do we sin, but we all live in and lament the effects of that sin. Half the time we're being sinned upon and, and the pain of that and the, the hurt in that. We suffer loss and we live in the constant shame of our own failures. We live every day in the shadow of of our own death while also getting rocked by the death of others. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This isn't what we were created for. Ruth's plight at the beginning of this book where she was widowed and, and lost is just a glimmer of the predicament that each and every one of us find ourselves in as if, if we stop for one second to contemplate our lives. And just as Ruth, while lost and penniless and with her best years seemingly behind her, finds a redeemer, we get introduced to Jesus. And we generally know, you know, something about his people before we meet him, just like Ruth did. She got introduced to the people of God. She's living in Israel before she even meets Boaz. There does come a point when we humbly go to him and ask him to redeem us. And we find out that he's already been planning it all along. He was ready for that moment the second we brought it up. We feel like we're choosing Him only to find that He was choosing us. And here's the beautiful piece of the story. Ruth does nothing, really. She goes to Boaz, true, but there's nothing she can do to aid in her own redemption. She can't, you know, choose Boaz over the other guy. She's not given that option. She can't go, I'd rather be with Boaz. That doesn't play it. 
It's not like an episode of The Bachelorette where she, do they still use the rose thing? I've actually never seen the show. They don't do the rose? I don't know. Somebody, yeah, they don't. Everybody's afraid to nod. I don't watch it. Yeah, this isn't an episode of The Bachelorette where she gets to pick the one she wants. She's, she can't play a part. All she, can do, all she can do is approach Boaz. The rest is above her pay grade. Boaz takes care of the rest. I love this part of the story because that's the gospel. That is the gospel message. There's nothing we can do to earn or negotiate or really aid in our own salvation at all. You show interest in Jesus. That's it. You turn to Jesus. Jesus does the rest. Someone else has a claim on you before Jesus. Paul Paul says that we were slaves to sin and death. And Jesus has to negotiate and pay for our redemption. That's something he does. That's something he takes care of. That is the gospel. There's nothing you can do to contribute to this. Paul says it like this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good we have done. So no one can boast about it. That is the gospel. It's a free gift. You can't do anything. Ruth is such a great picture of us because all she does is show interest in Boaz. And he does the rest. He researches the deal. He figures out who has first rights. He negotiates the redemption. He provides the payment. He does everything. There is no better picture of the gospel. We move from death to life, from brokenness. We are redeemed back to our original design, what we were made for, of being stewards of God, lovingly connected to Him and others and ourselves and our calling. And all we do is show up. Anything else we do is either service or or. Anything we do for morality's sake is done after all the fruits of this amazing gift we've been given. But there's nothing we can do to contribute to our redemption at all. But of course, the allegory doesn't stop there, does it? Ruth and Boaz get together. And just like every love story has a backstory, every love story also has a life story. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When, she slept, when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your own age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and pulled him to her breast. And she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. I love how at the end of this book, after spending four chapters telling of how these two met and fell in love and and negotiated a marriage and had a baby without missing a beat, the author skips ahead three generations. Like, And that's not the end of the story. Because this goes all the way to David. In a single verse verse, Ruth goes from being the lead character in the story to just another link in the long chain to David, which then leads forward to Jesus. And I think this is so important to grasp. We live in this tension between being the main character in our own story 
And no matter what happens in your life, and what you think the theme or the, the main drama of your story is, what it really is is a love story about you and Jesus and, and everything Jesus did and, and does to redeem you. That's the main story of your life. That is, that is the biggest story of your life, period. But that's not the whole story. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we read a minute ago is followed by verse 10. And here's how the whole thing would read together. God saved you by His grace when you believe. You can't take credit for this. The gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for any good things we've done. So no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. I have a friend from high school... um, I haven't talked to for about 10 years, but at that point, we'd been out of high school about 20 years. And he still has his entire basement uh, decorated in our high school memorabilia. And he said he watches our senior year football highlight tape at least once a month. 20 years later! Anybody know somebody like that who just cannot let go of, like, the glory days? I absolutely love me and Esther's love story. I love telling it. I love remembering it. I love everything about it. But we've had 16 kids since then. <laughs> we've been through a lot of stuff in the past almost 30 years. And, and we're still working hard every day to find ways to make our relationship stronger and learn to love each other better and raise our kids better and hopefully make the world a little better along the way and to advance the kingdom of God just a little bit. As much as I love our falling in love story, my favorite day with Esther is today. Because I woke up with her laying next to me this morning, and that's awesome. And we started another day on the same team. The story goes on. We can't get parked. Jesus literally conquered hell to save you. But that's not the end of the story. He also wants to do life with you. Jesus wants you to be another link in the long chain of His always advancing kingdom, progressing the story far beyond yourself into the future. Reg reminds me all the time that healthy things reproduce. Ruth made Obed. Who made Jesse? Who made David? Who made Solomon? And on and on and on and on to Jesus. Likewise, Jesus chose 11 followers who made other followers Who made other followers? Who made other followers? And here we are today, swept up in the Jesus love story for us, each of us. But that also forces us to face the question, what do I bring to the table? Who do I hand off to? Hopefully your kids are the first thing that comes to mind. I hope their names are the first ones that pop when you think, who do I hand my faith to? Kids first. Always. But please don't let it stop there. Who else can you impact? The story started as a story about a woman named Naomi and her hardships. She had treated her daughter-in-law apparently so well that Ruth didn't want to leave her. Ruth had every right to leave and go back to her family of origin, but she vowed to stay with Naomi because Naomi had treated her well. At the end of the story, Ruth is now in a, a link in the chain to David. Your story is bigger than you. I hope you know that. 
if there's one thing that I try to remind myself every day is that I am just a character in this story. I'm just a piece of it. I get my scene, but if I play my role well, the story spins out from me and continues after me. God forbid the story ends with me. There's nothing more sad than that. So how are you ensuring that the story spins off from you? What are you reproducing? What are you? Who's your Obed? How do we respond to this? In this series, we've tracked with Ruth as she grew to love one of the people of God. While out there in Moab, this was not in the safety of, of God's community. This was not in the people. She just formed this relationship out there with somebody. Fell in love with her. And so she chose to head into Naomi's world with her. Rather than remain in the safety of her own world, she went into Naomi's world, into the community of faith, into the people of God with Naomi. If you want to advance the kingdom of God, there's nothing you can leverage as powerful as your love and kindness for people. That is your most powerful tool. Not your ability to answer all their spiritual questions and, oh, God's so awesome, and in Answering those questions is not your most powerful tool. Your most powerful tool is love and kindness for people, real people. It's not your pious behavior, doing everything right. That's not what's going to win you. It's not wearing the Christian t-shirt that looks like a Pepsi shirt, but isn't really a Pepsi. That's not how you save people. It's not turning Caleb up just a little louder so everybody around you can i got to sneak into Caleb's jab wherever I can. <laughs> Not to put too fine of a point on it, but the way you treat people can actually save their souls. Love, kindness, being a good friend. Because when they get attached to you, they get attached to the people of God. Here we watch Ruth as she was allowed to join the community of God's people. Even as she remained a Moabitess, she, she was invited to glean and participate in relationships and in the community as though she was one of them. Which means we have to be the type of community that is life-giving to everyone, everyone who walks through our doors. This means we actually have to love one another. You can't fake that. We have to actually do life together and we have to actually love the people that, that we gather with and let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's job. We don't have to be the Holy Spirit and clean the place up. We just love people. We create an environment of love. So that whether someone's one of us or not, when they come in, they're, they're allowed to feel that love and be a part of it. We have to have something real that they can partake of when they come. Last week, we watched Naomi step into Ruth's story and, and help Ruth be in a place where she could meet her Redeemer. If you remember, Naomi stepped up and said, okay, it's time. Here's what you do. That's a little racy. Put on some perfume, dress real nice. When the moment was just right, Naomi stepped in. I know I'm against, like, high-pressure sales when it comes to talking to other people about Jesus. I do believe we help people find Jesus. If we are sensitive to timing and we can find ways to put people in the right place in the right way, we do have a part to play. Whether that's simply an invitation to church or small group or 
whether it's by suggesting ways that they might reach out to God, or whether it's answering their apologetical questions, because some people do need that. We do have a role to play in, in leading people to the Redeemer and, and putting them in the right place to meet their Boaz. And this week, Ruth is barely present. She really does nothing in this story. Boaz, her Redeemer, does everything. And this is the Gospel. And I think the healthiest thing you can do in your relationship with Jesus is to realize that you can do nothing. You can't contribute to your salvation anyway. He saved you because He loves you. Just as Ruth is absent from the negotiation the payment of her redemption, we aren't even in that part of the story when it comes to our salvation. We turn to Jesus as Ruth did to Boaz, but Jesus does the work. And I believe if we can get that if we can stop trying every day to earn our salvation in some way, the next part of the story becomes a joy. Because Ruth's contribution to the kingdom is a baby. It's Obed. And I can tell you from experience, making babies is fun. My, at least my part is. The story doesn't say that Ruth spent the whole rest of her life trying to, to pay back the generous redemption that Boaz had purchased. She just has a baby. And from the sounds of it, that baby was loved and cherished and the joy of the entire family. But I believe when we realize our redemption was purchased for us and that we are loved and saved and we don't have to do anything to pay it back or earn it, then the only, only then are we freed to enjoy our salvation and the things that we contribute to the kingdom get to be part of the story and to continue long after us. We're not carrying the burden of performance. We're suddenly allowed to, to, to love Jesus back and, and to share that love with others. There are joys that are experienced only after we free ourselves from the heavy responsibility. There's a reason that Paul put Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 in the order he did. We are saved by grace. It's a gift of God. There's nothing you can do to contribute to that. And you were saved so that you could do the good things God called you to do. The order is so important. If you try to do before you understand that you are already saved and redeemed and can add nothing to that, then it becomes a burden rather than a joy. Suddenly I'm trying to figure out how to pay all this back and earn it. And that's no way to live. The order matters. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is to take stock of your life right now. Oh man, I went long. And as we gather around the table and sing one last song together, think about your relationships at work, in your neighborhood, here at church, in your families. What role are you playing from this book? Are you Naomi? Where you're treating people well and showing kindness and just letting your friendship lead people to Jesus. Where you're helping them put themselves in the right place to meet Jesus. Are you serving primarily as the community of God, showing up and showing real love and authenticity, helping to create an atmosphere where everyone who walks through these doors feels like this place is different? Are you finding yourself as Ruth? 
here, not not yet married to your Redeemer, but maybe ready to curl up at His feet and say, hey, I'm interested. And watch Him redeem you. Or are, or are you Ruth, the mother of Obed, fully recognizing that you're invited in as an outsider and, and you've found your Redeemer and you know you've been saved and that He's done the work and now you're contemplating how you push the story beyond you. How do I spin the story so it doesn't stop with me? Ideally, I think we find ourselves in every character. So don't let that slip away. As we, as we move on from this book into our next study, ask yourself that question. Who am I? Where am I in the story? Where am I in this? Because it doesn't stop with me. I don't have to let it stop with me. Do the work, examine your life, and ask yourself where you are in this story. Wherever it is, take that next step.